Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Precision Microcast. In this episode, we talk about ASML and all the precision requirements that their chip manufacturing machines have. And we talk about our new purchases in the precision problem segment. This week, we're combining the precision tool segment and the history segment into one. And we're talking about ASML. And ASML is the largest machine tool company you've probably never heard of. So um, it's going to be an involved discussion about all the nitty-gritty parts about this company, ASML, and what they produce, uh, as well as some broader overreaching uh, thoughts on the industry that ASML serves and how it impacts our daily lives. So Adam, maybe you can tell us uh, about why ASML exists. So ASML is a manufacturer or supplier, I guess, of photolithography equipment for the semiconductor industry. Uh, Semiconductor chips going into iPhones, printers, refrigerators, pretty much any consumer product. And they, they build a piece of equipment just to etch the lines into these. Um, And they have continued to push innovation all because of this very one thing, and that's Moore's Law. Uh, It very much so governs their industry. And Moore's Law is the observation that the number of transistors in a dense integrated circuit doubles every two years, roughly, Uh, is an observation and a projection of the historical trend. It's not necessarily a law of physics. Uh, It's an empirical relationship linked to gains from experience in production. And so they they are armed with this historical data and knowledge that every two years, they're going to have to get more circuits in roughly the same space, if not less. And so they, they use that to confidently progress forward with developing their product to work to tighter and tighter levels. So ASML is uh, one of the main companies that provides the equipment for photolithography uh, and is the main company that provides the newest generation of photolithography equipment. And you'll hear this term a lot in the podcast and it's called uh, EUV or extreme ultraviolet. And uh, EUV lithography more specifically is uh, all about taking the photolithography process to the absolute limit. And traditional lithography, as um, we're sort of exposed to it in, um, maybe even in art, uh, when you have lithographic processes for printmaking, um, operates on the visible spectrum. And uh, you have photosensitive uh, chemicals that you expose light uh, onto, and you uh, can etch away the the negative or the positive, depending on exactly what you want, but it's it all works in the visible light spectrum. Um, and I guess as the as the topic progresses, we'll talk about why there's a push to EUV or extreme ultraviolet. But going down to the UV spectrum, uh, and sometimes even the deep UV spectrum, comes with massive, massive challenges. And uh, this is one of the things that we'll talk about a lot. Um, 
what ASML is doing right now with their newest generation of machines, it's called the NXE 3000 series, is nothing short of incredible. And um, uh, we'll sort of explore why and how they can produce uh, such incredibly complex machines. Um, but ASML sort of didn't come out of nowhere as well. They had um, a massive hold in the industry with standard lithographical processes um, and arguably they had the highest commercial success of any lithography machine with a twin scan series and um, a very like short explanation of how the twin scan works is that it's a it's a standard lithography process but they they create a little bubble of water just above the silicon wafer um, that they're shining uh, this visible light through uh, and the visible light I think it's 130 nanometers or 135 nanometers um, and this little bubble is sort of zipping around this uh, this wafer at really incredible speeds there's a couple of videos we'll link link um, link to in, in the podcast notes but uh, this twin scan machine was a massive commercial success and part of the reason why ASML could even broach into the EUV market well really create the EUV market is on the back of the twin scan and all the money that they can uh, sort of recoup and reinvest back into the R&D for the EUV Um, so that sort of brings us to sort of a why and a how of um, of ASML but who is ASML Adam Uh, well we are, for the sake of this podcast, considering them a machine tool builder, and you know, they, it is a machine tool if you kind of look at it. And, and so I, I think they consider themselves a tech company, but just going by their, their quarterly statements, um, 2020, they did $14 billion in revenue. Uh, they had 28,000 employees. So to give that as a comparison to what we would consider a machine tool company, DMG Moriseki, who I think is arguably one of the larger machine tool companies in the mm. world, did 1.8 billion in revenue, or euro mm. in revenue. And uh, so, you know, they, they just are massively bigger than even DMG. When, when, when you think about it like that, that really puts into perspective how important this industry is. Uh, as a company, they don't, make all that much they're more of a systems integrator they have key suppliers Mm. who they reach out to and have build sub assemblies and they essentially package it into their their end product Uh, and these these sub suppliers are very very interesting because they they don't exist without asml and asml does not exist Mm. without them there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of inter-industry competition. Everybody seems to just be going the same direction, which is advancing forward to meet mm. Moore's law. And that's one of the things I find really mm. interesting is the industry just really pushes for that every year to be able to make more, I guess. What was really interesting to me was that of the 28,000 employees they have, they, they have 5,500 researchers. Yes, that's a huge ratio of researchers yeah. to to normal employee. Absolutely, and if they if they 
I think if they tried to do this stuff in-house and I think their main competitors are like Canon and Nikon who do uh, photolithography machines in-house, I bet their ratios are, are very different. They probably have many, many more employees um, if they had to have 5,500 researchers. Um, it also goes to show that they're really investing heavily to figure out the physics problems and the science problems behind the technology, um, which is pretty unique, I think, if we compare it to traditional, if we're calling it traditional, but traditional machine tool manufacturers. Um, you might have like one Marv at Kern per five to 10, maybe even 20 people who are just assembling the machines. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it's sort of, fruits uh in them having twelve thousand patents um and i'm sure many of those patents are, are for the euv machines that we're that we're sort of looking at now one of the absolutely key sub suppliers that they use is carl zeiss who you may know for stereo microscopes or metrology equipment uh carl zeiss is in charge of the the optics and the subassembly goes around that. Uh, so there, there are no lenses in the EUV machine. Rather, they, they do everything via mirror. And Carl Zeiss's goal is to develop the mirrors and the stage that holds them. And that's a pretty impressive feat all on its own. And to give you an idea, the, the accuracy of the stage on this, if you shot a laser beam at the moon which average distance is 384,400 kilometers, the positional accuracy would be about 200 millimeters that far away. Uh, and so not only are the positioning stages really impressive, but the lapped form of the mirrors uh, have to be very, very accurate. And Josh, you had a, a figure, I, I don't remember now, but uh, as to what the, the mirrors scaled up to accuracy-wise would be like. Yeah, so uh, the majority of the mirrors are aspherical, and if you flatten that asphere out and you had it as a, as a, as a flat plane, um, and that plane was extended to the size of Germany, and obviously they're going to relate it to Germany because they're Germans, but I think that's around 900 kilometers tip to tip. Um, the largest surface deviation in the form of the mirror is uh, if you're walking across this plane from one tip of Germany to the other tip, the the biggest hill, let's say, that you'd walk over is going to be 100 micron, so 0.1 of a millimeter um, on 900 kilometers, and that's they're actually polishing this a sphere to that to that form tolerance. It's incredible. This is all in an effort to reduce. Uh Abbe error, uh, which we see in machine tools in terms of uh, angular alignment of things. The farther you get away from a, a misaligned part that there grows, well, with optics, you have a very similar problem. Uh, and so everything has to be very precise because when scaled down to nanometer levels, a uh, little bit of error can, can be quite substantial then. And one thing with uh, EUV that's quite different from all of the previous generations of photolithography is um, the optic system. So Zeiss is, 
has always been a really critical partner for ASML. All of the previous generation, especially the twin scan range, all the optics were developed by Zeiss and integrated by by um, ASML. Except, uh, and, and I love this in, in one of the videos we, we watched for research, I love this phrase. It said that the, the NXE 3000 series is not uh, evolution of... Um, of the previous generations of photolithography. It's a revolution and they're not kidding. So one of the characteristics of deep UV light or EUV light is uh, that it gets absorbed by anything. Uh, so air is a problem because the air molecules will absorb the, the, uh, the light uh, lenses obviously because they're matter <laughs> they're just going to absorb the uv light and uh, that leaves you in a really tricky scenario where you have to focus this light somehow without the use of lenses but of course they do use lenses in the in the form of mirrors and uh, they bounce this light and uh, up and down and across and all the way through this machine in vacuum by using these mirrors and these are the mirrors that they lap to those crazy form tolerances. Um, one taking even one step back in the process, the uh, the light itself is usually generated with a laser in previous um, generations of machines, photolithography machines. But in this generation, the EUV uh, sort of um, they they took it to they had to take it to the next level because there's no efficient way of generating. EUV light um, outside of uh, using plasma. And so what they do is they take a laser and they focus this laser on a tiny droplet of tin. So the, the tin droplet is 30 microns and it's a uh, molten tin that they pulse a uh, 25 kilowatt laser from, from, I believe it's from a CO2 laser, which evaporates the tin and produces this EUV light that they collect. And this light bounces through all those mirrors and they say that 2% of the photons from the uh, tin explosion, let's call it, uh, reach the actual wafer on the, on the stage. Um, and so every last photon counts that they can sort of absorb and move from one end to the other. Um, another thing that I found super fascinating about Zeiss's uh, sort of role in in these mirrors is that not only did they have to become experts in polishing these forms to uh, picometer tolerances, uh, they had to become experts in coating these mirrors. So the mirror coating is arguably the most important part of the, of the, of the whole lens assembly. Uh, the glass substrate that the mirror is lapped, lapped on is just, uh, I guess, a holder for the form. And the final roughness and final, uh, uh, I guess, physical or physics properties are determined by the coating. And so the coating is an alternating um, structure of molybdenum and silicon. It's called like this mosey layer. And each of these layers uh, is, is um, a certain, uh, certain thickness and it creates what's called known as a Bragg grating, which reflects off the EUV light um, uh, in a completely different way that, uh, than, than what you'd find like a, on a silver-based silver, silver mirror in your, in your house, right? It's, it's a completely different type of um, 
reflection property. And bragged ratings themselves are limited to a maximum efficiency of 70%. So no matter what, you're always going to lose 30% of your, um, your photons every time you bounce it off a mirror. And so the push then for this accuracy in the mirrors is not only to get them extremely uh, precise, but it's to reduce the amount of mirrors that you have in the whole sort of train. And uh, the only way that you can do that is by um, generating these mirrors in aspherical forms. And that's another added level of difficulty. Um, lapping and polishing these aspherical forms is much, much more difficult than, um, than a standard spherical or even a planar form. And I suppose why this was such a revolutionary machine versus evolutionary is they were already kind of up against the wall with how accurate they could be with the previous class of machines. Uh, you know, if we were using the machine tool analog. Uh, they, you know, in the machine tool industry might might be able to add glass scales or a chilling system to to get a get a machine mm. from five micron accuracy to two micron accuracy. Um, they were out of options. So they, they had to develop a whole new way of approaching this. And uh, the EUV versus laser was, was their only option. And uh, pushing forward, progressing to meet technology's expectations is huge in this industry. And I just really admire them for that. Um, I guess to compare it to your scenario, if there was a law that's, or a, you know, mm -hmm. that stated every two years, the number of watches or number of gears in a watch doubled, you could very confidently put a huge amount of resources into gear production <laughs> because you knew you'd have that internal mm. demand and that your customers would be buying these watches with you know, more than ever gears. In them. Mm. Uh, and so I, I just find that very interesting about the industry and that they can very, very confidently plan around that. It's, it's pretty funny. A lot of the time we talk about like precision drivers, like what's the, what's the driving force behind why a machine has to be precise. And uh, this, this machine is so precise. It's, it's like many, many orders of magnitude as uh, beyond what, we're encountering on a day-to-day -day basis as, um, as machinists or manufacturing people. Um, but the driver is so that you can order Amazon off of your fridge. <laughs> like, that's, that's why all this has to happen, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I find that hilarious because, uh, as you said, these companies that in this beautiful symbiotic relationship where they're relying on each other at the same time that they're um, sort of purchasing from each other like ASML would be from Zeiss and Zeiss would be sort of listening to ASML's demands but at the very end of the chain is just some Karen who really likes the convenience <laughs> of <laughs> you know uh, ordering from a fridge so yeah I try not to think about what it is I make, you know, a lot of the tooling, uh, sometimes it's just a little futile. Uh, I, a lot of what I do is household electric light switches, circuit breakers. 
And that stuff has some legit use, but I've had my fair share of parts I thought were just dumb. Uh, but I just, I do what I do, and I think <laughs> not about the uh, the greater impact that gets a little gloomy, if I do. Yeah, it's very easy to get lost in um, in how cool that, what is it, pop can is going to look like. <laughs> it's, it's much easier to focus yeah. on the spin grinder that you can buy uh, because of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a couple of really interesting stats. Um, going back to ASML, uh, that that are sort of anecdotal, um, but they're based in the Netherlands, and uh, apparently 300 of their, let's say, I think it's close to 600 or 700 key suppliers are based in the Netherlands. Um, so as global as this whole, you know, machine tool manufacturing. A company is uh they still rely greatly on their local supply network and uh i found that fascinating because if you look at boeing for example um i i bet i i i'd really wonder i'd have to do more research but i really wonder if it'd be the same sort of proportion of local um suppliers to boeing yeah that's interesting i i have heard tale of you know small one-man shops making parts for boeing and like either you know Washington area or Kansas, but, uh, you know, I, I got to imagine they're a lot more spread out. Another really, uh, interesting fact was that, uh, each machine requires an insane logistical effort to get it from one place to another. And a lot of these machines are getting installed in Asia. Um, notwithstanding plenty are in the U S and, uh, I'm sure that will sort of spread globally as the machines become uh, more prolific. But a lot of these chip fabs are in Asia and getting a machine from the Netherlands to Asia is nothing short of um, impressive. Something like uh, five cargo planes worth of goods get flown just for one machine. And... At $120 million per EUV machine, that's uh, no, it's no small amount of, of, um, of the operating budget just for the transport. I'd be curious to see what, what the install was like, how, how many people, how long that takes, because, I mean, it's just calibrating everything, and I'm sure there's just a, a lot that goes into getting a thing set. Even the facility, you know, this isn't... This isn't mm. uh, a cement slab in a steel building. I, I, I suspect the facility is <laughs> just as important as the machine itself. I, mm. I do know that the chip fabric fabs or foundries have a lot of very specific requirements like water consumption. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of been mm-hmm. like a, a point of pain for the newest chip fab being built in America is that they're building it in the desert. Mm. Uh, and they go, they go through some, some horrendous amount of water every day. Just half the water gets lost in the the cleaning of the water, and then the other half is used to to flush particles off the chips in production. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the EUV machine, as expensive as it is, is just a cog in the gear chain and uh, mm. how expensive making a chip is. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you um you like it's it's just the small things that m- mass m- 
matter massively. Um, like imagine fitting out your entire workshop with a specific wavelength of uh, like functional light, like all the light fixtures ab- above above you. They all have to be a specific wavelength of the yellow light, and that's that sort of um, very uh, very um, uh, apparent and sort of distinctive yellow light that you see in all the tours of the chip fabs. It's so that the the, the visible light that you're working under doesn't uh, more or less overexpose the chips that, okay, maybe you're not handling, but you're in the same room as and so on and so on. And then like the cleaning, uh, it's talking like one, one uh, particle of dust per cubic meter. Uh, and then even less than that, um, that they try to achieve. So just very fascinating industry to me and EUV or ASML and their UV tech, I think is the, the easiest thing to put my finger on as a machinist and relate to uh, when I look at the industry. Although one thing I did find interesting, uh, Okamoto, uh, the grinder company has, has a kind of division that seems to focus mainly on making grinders for slicing wafers for this industry. Um, and you see a, a lot of Japanese companies that are, they, they have a branch solely dedicated to chip replication. Um, so I'm going to look more at those locomotive grinders. They're very cool. Uh, linear motor, uh, a lot of aerostatic, uh, very, very high reciprocation speed. So I found them interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely right on the Japanese company's um, focus on on uh, sort of the whole semiconductor industry. One thing that sort of popped across my radar recently was uh, a company called um, uh, ALMT, and it's a subdivision of Sumitomo Carbide. And ALMT specializes in all the diamond products that Sumitomo offers. So... Uh, any sort of polycrystalline diamond tool that uh, you have with a Sumitomo name on it has probably been manufactured by ALMT. ALMT. Um, and you can, if you get their catalog, for example, um, the like the Sumitomo general catalog, they usually have like 20 pages right at the very end where they talk about all the diamond tools that they make. And they make uh, some of the most advanced diamond tools to enter the industry. Anyway, all to say they have Within that division, a special division focused only on the um, the grinding wheels that they use to polish the silicon wafers. Uh, and what was fascinating, and I'll try to link a screenshot of one of these promotional flyers, is that they were competing against another one of these Japanese companies that provided these grinding wheels. Um, and they were like flexing their muscles and saying like, our grinding wheels are better than other grinding wheels and so on and so on. And I can't help but imagine there's probably one person in uh, like in the whole industry that would find that relevant and interesting. And they're trying to market that one person. I don't know. Buyers are, buyers are interesting breeds. It could be a very small number of people buying, but a lot of money getting spent. So <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. So... ASML is um, really pioneering in this uh, in this industry, and it all sort of comes full circle uh, with Professor Kinoshita, who developed uh, the first X-ray photolithography, 
in a research environment in 1985. Um, and he uh, transitioned into EUV or deep UV light uh, photolithography. Uh, and he wasn't accepted in Japan. Uh, and so he had to go to Europe and he did his first EUV workshop or sort of pr presentation or talk in 1995 and ever since then asml and zeiss and all the other uh suppliers that asml deals with have been working on this technology uh fast forward to 2021 and the first euv chips are now on the market in the most recent phones uh so it's come full circle from japan to netherlands to germany and now right in the palm of your hand. That should really say something as to the scale of this project. So the, it was first talked about and you know conceptualized in 95 at a workshop 26 years ago, and it's just mm. now making it to production chips. And the tech industry mm. is notoriously fast paced. And this is such a big problem, mm. it took 26 years. And so uh, that just really puts the whole thing into perspective for me. Okay, so today's precision problem. We both had a busy summer, but we're having a hard time pinning one down. So we instead decided to talk about future precision problems and upcoming purchases. Uh, mine's several orders of magnitude smaller than Josh's, but we both added some capacity to our shops in recent months, uh, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah, so what was yours? Let's start off with you. I bought a Toolmaker's microscope with a Heidenheim digital readout. What did you buy? <laughs> I also bought a Heidenheim digital readout, but it was uh, connected to a machine. Attached <laughs> to? Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, we bought a Kern Micro HD. Very good. But I was serious. Let's start with you. Um, you sent me that, I think it was like 2 a.m. for me. You sent me that um, QuadraCheck enabled Toolmaker's microscope. And uh, initially I thought you were going into the, um, uh, the agar plate industry and trying to figure out what microbes live, live under your uh, grinding grinding magnet um but then i realized it's actually an extremely capable measuring solution so why did why did you go for it i need some way to optically check form uh i've kind of hit the limit with using the maury's probing and surface plate and checking form at multiple orientations i need optical at this point mm. and i went to that pmts trade show in cleveland uh beginning of august specifically to look at optical gauging and i could get into a cmm or a not a cmm a uh, optical comparator mm. uh for for a price i felt comfortable with um the problem was kind of a floor space one i really needed a benchtop solution and so that kind of pushed me more towards measuring microscopes and uh, the measuring microscopes were surprisingly a bit more expensive than uh, a decent optical comparator. Right. Uh, that kind of caught me off guard. Um, and so I decided then, okay, let's look at used measuring microscopes. And the Nikon 
class of microscope really caught my eye because they're they're borderline modular. You can swap mm. out the eyepieces. Um, you, lenses are all very available, and it just seemed like a really good ecosystem to buy into. Mm-hmm. And then I came across this uh, Micron Measure Scope 10, and then it already had the XY stage and the Heidenhain QuadraCheck. And the QuadraCheck is a really important part of the package. So it's not just a XY coordinate digital readout. You can mm. probe locations and you can construct radii or angled lines. And so if looking at an intricate form, you can you can figure out tangent points, mm-hmm. center line of the radii you're measuring. Uh, it's just a, a very powerful addition to that type of measuring device. So one thing that uh, I've always noticed with the measuring microscopes is you have the the eyepieces as well as the objective lens. Um, so what did your microscope come with? Well, this one's equipped with a 10 and then a 1X eyepiece, which is very, very light for what I'm doing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the next step is to, I would like to get a 20X lens and then a, if I can find it, a 50. Apparently the 50s are a little hard to find on the used market, but are still available as new. Um, you just pay a lot more as new. Uh, and so... I think 50x, and in my past, you could do a lot with 50x. That's where you start to see cusping uh, from mm. grind wheels, and that's a, a good amount of feedback for your process. Mm. And so you're mainly measuring um, contours uh, that I guess traditionally would be measured on an optical comparator, or have you used this sort of stuff in in your previous employers' tool rooms? Or uh, I. Everywhere I've worked, I've had toolmakers microscopes available. Mm. As a grind hand, I was more prone to throw the part up on an optical comparator because you just take your entire fixture off the grinder and set it in the optical comparator. Uh... Um, and like a fixture, when you slide it up against the rib on a grinder and turn the magnet back on, as long as everything's clean, it's almost like a zero-point work holding system. Mm. It repeats astonishingly well sub 10 mm-hmm. uh and so that that workflow just always made a lot of sense um you can't really put a fixture under a microscope you can only put the small yeah. part and so that that's you know one of the negatives about this but it, it takes up about the same space as a desktop pc yeah it's very very compact yes and that's a that's a big problem in my shop so uh that was a a compromise i had to make over the comparator yeah that is a that is a massively underrated talking point about the comparators i think i've only seen a few comparators that could fit comfortably on a like a desktop a lot of them have a lot of weight yeah as well so it's like the desktop is in air quotes it usually comes with a reinforced steel desk (laughs) exactly yeah, uh, like the one that we have is, I think, over over 180 kilos. Um, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a desk that it could sort of sit on. And not, not to mention that if it did sit on a desk, it would be at an uncomfortable height as well. Um, whereas the Toolmaker's microscope seems perfect because it's pretty much designed to be on a desk. Yeah, so it felt like a good fit for my shop. I have a couple of mill parts which will really benefit from um, it kind of looks like a puzzle part and the hole gets precision drilled 
and then you have to mill mm. like that puzzle cut out tangent to the hole. And uh, so that'll make getting everything lined up in tangent a lot easier, you know, comping your end mill till it blends to that hole is uh, a, a mm-hmm. little tricky. And right now I do that all with indicators and gauge pens and it's, it's time consuming. And now I could just throw it under the microscope and hit uh, measure a few points and should be, should be much faster. So at PMTS, um, if you didn't find this, this gem on eBay and you didn't pull the trigger, what was sort of next? Uh, optical gauging products has always impressed me and they made, so like my parts kind of fall into two classes, precision parts, which is a lot for the pocket knife customer I have. And then tool and die parts, which are one-offs, very, very precise. And the tool and die stuff really benefits from an optical comparator, as I mentioned earlier. But the pocket knife stuff mm. would do quite well with something like a, a Keons, like you have, where you throw the parts on and it measures it for you. And OGP has a optical comparator, which is also a digital vision system. So it can yes. do both. Yeah. I could throw my tool room parts on, measure contours and slot widths, or I can throw a hand tool or a handful of uh, uh, knife parts on, and it can automatically identify and measure those. And mm-hmm. that seemed like a really, really versatile system. And it was not cheap, but I, I felt like that would have been a comfortable way to go. Um, but I'm, I feel like this is a, a nice stopover for now. But, I, you know, back in earlier part of the 2020, I decided to make the grinding department, not just a support Mm -hmm. element of the company, but a very, very Mm. real part of our bottom line. And so all spring and summer, I've been, as funds allow, slowly upgrading the grind department. It's got, you know, Mm -hmm. new list of cabinets and lots of new fixtures and the manual grinder got a Heidenheim digital readout, you know, new anti-vibration feet. And so everything's just been slowly upgrading that department. And so that's... Yeah, tell us about the listers. Uh, standing in front of them now. Uh, I've got three, <laughs> three one-meter high list of cabinets and a wood butcher block. I, uh, the problem with getting all this new stuff is storing it and uh, storing it in a way that's mm. easy to get to. And wheel storage had become a very real problem. Um, so my first pass on the wheel storage, I'm pretty happy with, I have a drawer and in a list of cabinet, the bottom of the drawers have a grid of holes mm-hmm. and you can use it to mount dividers. And right now I just yes. have uh, Delrin plugs with a kind of a top hat shape that the wheel hub sits ah. on. And interesting. I just machined them. Uh, had I had a 3d printer, I probably would have gone that route, but, uh, and so I'm storing my wheels laying down, which isn't as space efficient as storing them vertically, but for the conventional abrasive wheels, it doesn't mess with the balance when the coolant wicks mm. to one side. So I'm happy with that setup for now. And uh, you've got all these lovely new Lister cabinets um, and you sent me this photo and one of them has something I've never seen before. And people who are probably 
well-versed in Lister, especially in Germany, have probably seen it before. But what's different about that one cabinet? Uh, it's just a sliding door. You can put big things in it instead of... Is that what you're going for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It blew my mind. I've never seen a Lister cabinet designed for big things. Well, they also make a hinge door, but it's not as good in tight galleys. But uh, the sliding door can be a pain because it seems like anytime I need something, it's on the opposite side and I have to slide. The... Mm. But uh, um, so <laughs> they also make an overhead cabinet like you'd have in your kitchen with glass stores. Really? And I wouldn't mind a set of those for above the workbench, but I think it would really cut light down. Like I'd have to have a fluorescent yeah. tube underneath of them. Yeah, we in in our new kitchen at home um the the splashback behind the kitchen is a is a window and you'd think oh great we've got all this light coming in but the window sort of backs onto a neighbor's fence and ah. you get nearly no light in um which sort of sucks but uh we sort of realized that during during the planning process we still wanted the window and the cabinets above the workspace uh just with the limitations of how the whole kitchen is sort of designed quite low. Um, and we had to do the same thing. We put an led strip directly under the, under the cabinets and surprisingly it gives more light than overhead lights, you know, two and a half, three meters above would have cast. Um, and, uh, it's a lot softer as well because you don't have to pump, you know, 50 Watts of led power down from three meters high. You just got this one strip of lights that'll, um, yeah, look at you. You're already planning the next stage of your shop shop development. Well, I I wanted to kind of diversify the shop out of just milling. And grinding made a lot of sense if you look at it in terms of input cost. Uh, I could do mm. very, very large orders of grinding work with, you know, pennies or dollars a day of, of consumables. Mm. Uh, and you do not get that with hard milling. And so it just, it's, uh, seemed like a very good way to push the business. Uh, I'm not saying I'm only going to do grinding, but you know, as I, as I grow, that's something I want to grow with the business, do more and more grinding. No, it's very exciting, Adam. It's very exciting to see all this stuff. And, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's living vicariously through all the updates on Instagram. Yeah. Who knew so many people thought grinding was interesting, but <laughs> It's, uh, I don't know, having a space I do it in now is very relaxing. Um, you don't hear a lot of the mill noise. Uh, I'm away from the air mm. compressor. So uh, I, I told somebody it's like my mechanical zen garden. It's come over here and mm. grind. and It's very relaxing. White, lots of natural daylight. So I'm very happy with the mm. space. Yeah, from the photos that you've sent as well um, and shown, uh, the windows look, perfectly poised to catch a lot of sunlight in and um that's a massive quality of life thing i think a lot of shops miss out on well i did have to put blackout shades in because uh there's about a three hour stretch in the morning where the sun just becomes this tolerance killing death ray and anything metal <laughs> gets like 30 degrees warmer um so about wow. about 7 a.m i pull the shades and they don't get opened back up till about 10 a.m Oh, well, it's not so bad having the choice to pull down shades. Um, 
our factory is very uh, sort of landlocked, got three sides and three neighbors and then a garage door. So no windows for us. <laughs> well, let's talk about your new purchase because I think it's arguably the more exciting one. Um, well, it's not new. It's uh, We sort of announced it at the start of the year. Um, in March, we pulled the trigger on a Kern Micro HD, which would be the second milling machine and second Kern that we have. Uh, and it's due for delivery. Um, well, it's a bit of a question with Corona, but uh, we're hoping for early March next year. So it'd be 12 months from pulling the trigger to sort of having it land. And who knows how long the install is going to take, especially considering getting a tech out from Germany to Australia is going to be near, nearly impossible. But um, Is Marvin stalling it? <laughs> yeah. um, I wish he was and he's, he's going to hate me saying that because he hates Australia and he hates all things poisonous but I wish he was coming and I wish well frankly I wish anyone was coming at this rate but Marvin would make it extra, extra special do you have a little cabin fever <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit cabin fever <laughs> um no, but the machine is is leaving in I think tenth of December from Eschenlohe, and unfortunately as well, COVID sort of has prevented us from going and uh, doing like a pre acceptance in Germany of the machine. Um, but I'm sure we'll sort of make that up one day when we're allowed to travel. Currently, the the COVID situation in Australia is pretty nasty. Um, it's it's a lot easier to leave than it is to come back. I think. Sydney is currently capped at 400 uh, international arrivals per day. So that's like three planes per day for, you know, a city of four, five million even. Um, but heaps of planes leaving. Uh, so you could jump on a plane and go to Germany and you'd just get put on the very end of a list of, a long list of expats trying to make their way back to Australia. Um, so... I know one person that's been stuck there for seven months now, uh, and every time their like flight Ooh. is, you know, upgraded and moved up into the queue, someone else, you know, of a high priority sort of steps in and takes over. But so unfortunately, uh, we won't be going over to Germany or anyone coming over from Germany. But um, I'm pretty confident that it's uh, it's what we want, and I'm sure they're not going to sting us on an option and. Suddenly, a machine arrives without a, you know, coolant chiller or something like that. Figure that's going to be all okay. What did you uh, do for options? Um, so I guess the most notable options for us were the HSK forty spindle. Um, our Pyramid Nano has an HSK twenty five spindle. Um, so we optioned the forty, and the second big option was the internal power changer. So. Our Pyramid Nano doesn't have any automation, whereas with this uh, with this new machine, it'd be like a step step in the automation direction. Um, having now that is the pallet changer that is on the side in the tool changer cabinet, and not the Aroa like John Grimsmill has. Correct. Yeah. So it's a small comparatively to the uh, larger Aroa system. It's a small pallet changer that handles. The ITS-72 pallets from Aroa, uh, it's like 72 millimeters in diameter. Or you can handle, um, if you get creative, larger things, but 
you sort of cut down on like you can you can create quite tall fixtures and use them either as window fixtures <coughs> or mini tombstones uh, so you might be at 72 millimeters in diameter and maybe 150 millimeters in height um, uh, otherwise you can use the 50 millimeter system from a row which is uh, sort of more common for electrode type work uh, a lot of uh, sort of copper fastening, graphi graphite fastening fixtures are in the ITS 50 range. Um, and it seems to be that that's one of the big pushes is like uh, unmanned operation for electrode manufacturer could be, you know, a really nice solution with, with the internal power changer. Yeah, it looks very well suited for that. Did you get the jig grinding package? Uh, no, I didn't, but Marv really wanted me to, Lame. so, <laughs> and you'll hate. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> um, he, but he wanted me to get it so I could show you up and, um, suddenly be able to, uh, jig grind. Cause I think what had happened is he posted that lovely, uh, video of the Haas mini mill doing some chop grinding, um, a while ago, long while ago. And uh, I think he got Marv got a little bit jealous of that, and he wanted somehow to show. Uh, he wanted me to somehow show you up with that. But I was astonished how well that did. Yeah, it looked beautiful. Like it, it, it was a legit stunning finish. Um, so, yeah, chop grinding where the wheel moves up and down coaxially to the spindle uh, Z in this direction uh, produces stunning, stunning. Mm part finishes uh you do have a cusp pipe each time the wheel steps over but it tends to be well below a micron mm. um and uh just it's a very accurate way to make parts the only trade-off is it's generally very time consuming mm. with traditional machine tools but a hydrostatic weighed linear motored machine can really up the mm. time so or down down the time, I suppose. Uh, so it just it seems like a good progression for for jig grinding is to go into linear motor mm. and hydrostatic ways. So I was really really hoping to see more of that in the wild. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Um, Rotors has a couple of demos as well of that process with you know crazy stick outs and gauge lengths of these tools of these grinding wheels, and um, they're producing absolutely incredible finishes. Uh, on free forms, well, not quite free form, I guess, but um, maybe like wave-based surfaces, I guess. Um, but no, we didn't get the jig grinding, but we also have no need to get the jig grinding. We don't barely, I mean... What about your little carbide de scrapers? <laughs> you, can, you can make those in your current... You're a bastard. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> I love those things. Um... They do look very handy for micro to burn. Uh, no, that's good. You got me there. You got me there. Um, no, we, we we barely do any grinding as it is. So we only just got a surface grinder and, and what we do on it is, you know, rudimentary and basic. Yeah, flat. flat. It's just flat surfaces. Um, so the jig grinding is sort of lost on, on us. Uh, there is a case to be made for... if. You know, if we did anything like a ceramic watch case or um, any hard material. Is that a hardware 
or just a software package? Uh, both. So the software is, well, from what I understand, but the software is the cycles. And uh, the really neat thing about the software package on the Heidenhain with the jig grinding is that it uses the PLC to control the Z reciprocation. So ah. you can, you've got pretty much two separate feed rates. Um, you've got what? So the control handles like the XY contour. Yes, that's right. And the PL. So, so that's a relatively basic programming correct, task. Correct. And then the, um, the up down motion is controlled by the PLC. So what you can do is, you know, uh, I mean, if, if, if you can imagine that if all three, um, axes were controlled by the control, if you change the feed rate, um, you're changing the, the interpolation of the form as well as the stroke rate. Whereas those two are now separate, mm. um, which I thought was quite neat. And, uh, that's kind of how my new Parker does it. Oh. Um, you you can establish a reciprocation rate, and then you have the control follow a subprogram, which has mm. the two D contour, um, and you have it on its own path feed rate. And but you can you can control that feed rate mm. independent of the x x axis reciprocation mm -hmm. feed rate. Um, so it's very neat. Or you can you can post out from cam, and yes. uh, that gets a little more elaborate. But you you can do some different stuff that way mm. too. And the second thing that the um, the jig grinding package has is the hardware, which is the wheel dresser on the side of the the swivel mm. axis um, as well. They did a great job placing. Yeah, it, it looks awesome. I'd just get it. Because it looks awesome. <laughs> Makes the machine go faster. But I mean, like in terms of being out of the way of the automation, yes. yeah. um, but still relatively easy to use. Um, uh, it just seemed like a very smart setup. Absolutely. It looks super sweet. And um, I think you mentioned a few times uh, the brand. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Kaiser, I believe, is the, the spindle manufacturer for that, that unit. Uh, that's one of them. I don't know if that's who's on. Right, one. right. It could be, could be, I guess, but it's that sort of style of um, rotary, um, rotary, rotary dresser, rotary dressing unit. Um, and then the second part of the hardware package is the acoustic emission sensors, which. Um, is it the Marpaz? Uh, I'm not sure uh, what it, what brand um, they went with, but. You can all, all five of you can hit Marv up and pester him as to what it is. He'll know. Um, but yeah, the jig grant package was, was sort of uh, never in the sights um, for this machine. The machine was more tough. Next one. <laughs> the next one. Well, I feel like if you need it, it's probably, it's probably a big enough job that it'll pay itself off quite quickly. Um, so, and yeah, it's not field... Uh, installable as well so it'll have to be a new machine <laughs> now you have the same problem i do which is space mm. constraints um where are you putting this <laughs> well um yeah just like two weeks ago i got the floor plan 
for the machine, the final uh, consolidated floor plan for my specific machine, because it can come in a couple of different configurations depending on uh, which, uh, like if you've got... I imagine you have like yes. chiller and coolant boxes. Yes, yeah, exactly. So you can have systems with house water systems or you can have systems with a integrated chiller or external chiller and so on. And um, I've sort of laid... A house cooling system is big on my list of life Oh, goals. yeah, it would... I hate having all these independent absolutely. chillers and thermal management systems. And it's surprisingly a lot cheaper. If you had 10 <clears throat> machines, for example, with all individual chilling units and all the rest, having one consolidated system is far cheaper, not just in terms of capital outlay, but in terms of... Um, uh, uh, maintenance costs. Imagine maintaining 10 different systems, especially if they're manufactured by different well, how, people uh, as to one monolithic how, one. <clears throat> how cool would this be to say you have like a molding shop that's doing a fair bit of cooling uh, and you have a lot of thermal energy to get rid of and in the wintertime, you pump that heat under your driveway uh, your facility and keep it clear of snow and that ice. That would be very, very neat. Yes. Thankfully, we have zero or snow. Or in the summertime, you heat your swimming pool. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you could heat your swimming pool. Yep. A shop swimming pool. It's a business write-off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, that, that was... Uh, actually, it was a really neat um, shop in Switzerland. It was the <laughs> Louis Belay factory. They had some incredible um, thermal management of, of their whole factory. So they had these huge ducts that sort of um, sucked up all of the waste heat from, from the machines. And they had uh, like these Y sections, these splitters that would, um, they'd be able to change where the, the hot air was going to, to like around the whole facility. Um, and I'm not sure if it was automated and controlled by like a central system, but being able to route your hot air to a place that needs it and, uh, would be very very neat yeah i have you know a fair amount of hot air that i don't want to get rid of in the winter time i effectively don't have a heating bill in the winter uh, and i'd like to keep that mm. if i could but uh boy in the summertime to not have to have horrendous air conditioning cost would be cool yes yeah and we have a scenario in the summer where uh the roof of our facility We've got sort of two floors um, and the roof of our facility is at like a galvanized um, like sheet metal steel sort of roof. Um, we call it color bond in Australia for whatever that's worth. And uh, that turns into a fry pan when you get like a mm. scorching, even, even like on a 30 degree day, 30 degree Celsius day, that's, that thing is hot. Uh, but on a 45 degree day, we've had a couple of instances where the support equipment so like the chillers and the air compressor they all get too hot to function and they just go into their like auto shut off procedures um so yeah we've sort of got the inverse problem where we want to get rid of as much heat as possible 80 percent of the year well that's enough about heat uh what else <laughs> did you get with what, what are your your tooling concerns for the hsk 40 um yeah that was a big one um are you getting the rego fix yeah so 
I'm not a hundred percent set on anything, but um, I think we're leaning towards the power grip system. Um, it seems like the best of all of the systems uh, sort of rolled into one, and the negatives with the power grip system all just seem to be price. It's just a very expensive. Um, yeah, that's the only cost I've ever heard. Yeah, uh, the only issue I've ever heard. Yeah, so that that's what I'm hoping to swing, uh, and the backup would be going with Big Daishawa um, and a lot of the hydraulic holders. Uh, Boy, those I mean, are like what, they aren't thousand dollars a piece. Yeah, exactly. They're not cheaper. Um, but what I foresee is having uh, having a having a tool cabinet with mixed Big Daishawa products, where you have um, some hydraulic holders for the specific applications that require them, usually the highest precision, you know, tools that you want to stick into them. And then the rest running their collet system. So the baby mega new micro chuck, uh, whatever it's called. They have the worst naming. I bet I nailed that. I bet just me randomly saying all those things. I bet I nailed that. Uh, chuck name. <laughs> they, they have something under catalog name that I guarantee it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and that, that would be like a very low cost uh, sort of, well, it's not low, but it's much cheaper than the power grip uh, for a collet based system. Yeah. I, I uh, certainly have had good luck with Big Dishoa and the few products I use from them. Um, but mm. the power grip is compelling, especially if you're doing like longer reach stuff. Mm. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so that's uh, that's the tooling side and um, sort of only outliers for that. Uh, we've got a couple of ideas of running some fly cutters in there. So it's like some just standard arbor holders. And one big thing that I was um, very insistent on was to go to a standard ISO HSK40 um, tool holder and uh, tool changer interface. So currently with the pyramid nano that we have um it runs an hsk 25e tool holder but it's a special kern uh sort of addition i guess the, the flange is almost like an hsk 32 flange so it's much wider than uh so the face contact rather the face contact flange is much wider than a standard hsk 25 and that limits you to only using the kern special tool holders and you have to buy them all through kern which is fine, um, except that uh, it, I don't really like being constrained to a supply chain that's overseas. Uh, at least with the Big Daishao and Power Group stuff, we have a local distributor that they keep stock in, in Australia. So if I need a collet or a tool holder, God forbid, from something bad happening, then I can just ship it in the, the same day. Um, mm. So yeah, that's really the tool holding side. And then most of the work holding, I imagine, will be custom fixtures on Aroa bases. Yeah. Um, all the internal products that we make are pretty much on custom custom fixtures. Uh, we use a lot of glue fixtures, so it's sort of a grid pattern. Um, and some window fixtures for some like double-sided machining. Uh, and a lot of the parts that we do for the contract manufacturing, they can be held from 
excuse me, they can be held from ER32 collets or ER16 or whatever, any ER collet uh, and made from round bar. All the parts can sort of, they're small enough to fit into like a 20 millimeter diameter round bar. Um, so I foresee a scenario where we might have 10 or 15 ER, ER collet holders in the, in the automatic pallet changer um, that you can just swap out. Well, I think that'll be very productive for you. Uh, I imagine you'll be running oil in this machine as well. Yes, I, I think, I think I know of like two machines that run coolant, water-based coolant, um, two kern machines that do it. And oil has so many like and so many benefits over water-based coolant um, in scenarios where you're doing micro machining and any sort of uh, like even from a thermal standpoint, oil has coolant like beat for stability um stability yes cooling yeah no cooling no but in micro in micro machining you don't have as many cooling needs but yeah no, when, exactly when you turn on the when you turn on the oil it doesn't like shock the part in size yes exactly um so yeah and i mean that's another thing that we're probably gonna have to look at um is which type of oil uh uh, there's a Blaza product that I've got my eye on currently. That's um, the the rep for Blaza, and he and he probably will listen to this. So uh, it he's he's by far the best coolant rep I've ever had. So he um he's I think they might have sent me. Is it a new like GTX eight or something? Uh, I think so. It's for micro tool, yes, it's very low viscosity. Very low. Yeah, viscosity. they sent me a core. Oh, how do you like um, it? Ah, smells like oil, feels like oil. <laughs> um, it, the lower viscosity is intriguing though, mm. um, but it's kind of hard to judge viscosity. Like, you know, it, it looks light in the bottle, but it still yeah. kind of clings to stuff. Yes. Um, so I don't know how much that really gains me. Um, my issue is I run a 15 weight mm. and sometimes if you're doing a pocket it can tr- struggle to flush chips out of that pocket. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think a lower viscosity would pump out at a higher velocity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and remove chips a little better. But uh, yes, yeah. I've heard a lot of people who run oil make that complaint that it does not move chips like coolant. And it doesn't, but uh, that might be a, a way to circumvent that. Yes, uh, so w- we run an oil that's I want to say ten weight, um, and over time, uh, especially when you heat it up, this specific oil it's made by Castrol. I forget what it's actually called. Over time, it gets quite thick, and uh, especially with the Pyramid Nano, I found that the hydraulic oil inevitably mixes in a little bit. And um, so we're sort of probably at the stage after four years where we'd have to do a, we don't have to, but it'd be very convenient to do a coolant change on the Pyramid Nano as well as a coolant fill on the, um, on the, on the new machine. So uh, changing the shop over seems like a compelling idea. I'm at about two years on my oil, I believe. Mm. two years life on it and it's still looking pretty good it doesn't have any viscosity issues 
and I haven't filled it yet. And you're at four years and you're just now <laughs> contemplating that. And I just look at guys who like put all this effort into coolant management. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that looks like it yeah. sucks. Um, yeah, you know. yeah, absolutely. So I, I enjoy what oil brings to my shop benefits wise. Mm. And I'll, I'll, I'll take the lack of cooling and the occasional risk of fire along with that. <laughs> yeah. The most annoying thing for for oil is when you have a leaky machine and then you're constantly mopping up the floor and making sure it's not a slip hazard. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I have uh, had to invest a lot in oil soaking up type sheets, the, uh, the pig mat, <laughs> we call it. But, pig uh, mat, I keep yeah. a keep a roll of that handy. Yeah. Well... I'm excited for you. Uh, I don't all ever have a micro HD, so I get to live vicariously through you. And uh, I think that's going to be really, really neat to to watch you kind of grow into it. Um, mm. It just seems like a supremely capable machine. And I think it'll bring a lot to your operation. I'm, I'm equally as excited, Adam, and very excited <clears throat> to share it. Uh, it. It'd be really cool to um, to grow into it uh, alongside everyone else and sort of share the journey and sort of like what we've done for our shop up until now. And, uh, yeah, hopefully no crashes, huh? <laughs> well, you got to knock on wood. I'll do it for you. Um, <laughs> And thank you for tuning in to episode 13 of the Precision Microcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. Adam and I had a blast recording this session and it was a little bit of a time delay between recording and and getting it out there. But um, if you've got any questions or requests or anything uh, positive or negative to say, um, don't hesitate to hit either of us up on Instagram. And uh, we'll be speaking to you guys soon. 